You're listening to Cooper Talk. Welcome to Cooper Talk. I'm your host, Steve Cooper, and remember, I'm only as hip as my guest. I gotta tell you something, people. My birthday was uh, the 30th, last Wednesday, and for my birthday present, Joanne got me a manicure. Now, I've had a manicure before, because a lot of people don't know this, but my hands were doubles in the show Westworld and NCIS, so I did a little hand modeling. But I haven't had one since I got back to New Jersey, because I don't do that anymore. But I figured out what she got me was a selfish gift, because she always says I scratch her when I grab her and I touch her with my nail, so she got me a manicure. Anyway, we have a great show today, and my guest I found out her birthday was two days after mine. She's uh, she's a great singer-songwriter, a multi-instrumentalist, and I just saw on her website that she's also an artist, and my guest is Sophie B. Hawkins. How you doing, Sophie? Hi, Steve Cooper. How are you? I've never had a manicure. I see. I had it just because, I, I was, as I said, I did. Somehow, when I lived in L.A., my hands ended up in a few TV shows. And so they want you their hands to look good. And it's weird because, to me, you can get them with, like, some shiny stuff on, but I get it without because it just looks weird if your nails are shiny. Yeah, I agree. I mean, the best look is, like you said, a natural hand, like uh, a hand that you can say, what does that hand do? Right. So- you know, so you obviously had a tra- hands attractive enough to get in movies. That's hysterical. It is. So now, now your birthday was November first, and you did a show that night, I believe. Yes, I did a show at Joe's Pub. I mean, it was a wonderful, wonderful show. It was really diverse. I tried a lot of new things, and I was so happy to be on stage because I felt there was so it was like a meeting of the souls. Now, do you? usually do a birthday show or, or did you plan this on your birthday because it was something special to you or how did the, the date come about? Well, yeah, I think somewhere, you know, I, I, I think it, it was last spring sometime and I just wanted to figure out a way to have a, a focused date to get my album out, my singles out, my, you know, start maybe a, a reading for my play and I have all these you know, all this material and it's so the business is so rocky that every time you think oh here's a port I'm going to land and I'll put my album through whatever pledge and then pledge is like turning upside down and bankrupt and whatever so it was Joe's Pub was a focus date and just so happens they offered me on my birthday and I said that will be the greatest thing because I always spend my birthday worried about other people feeling good because they're you know, and then I thought, well, if I'm going to worry about other people on my birthday, I'm going to have a show because then it's, a, you know, it's a valuable worry, a valuable worry because they're my audience. Now, I saw it sold out. Now, when you go into a, an event like that for your birthday, do you feel added pressure because it is your birthday or do you like sit there and go, you know what? And did the people, everyone know, did everyone know it was your birthday? No, although somebody did bring a cake on stage, so there was a point where everyone knew. No, no, people didn't know it was my birthday, and I felt more free because it was my birthday. But that could be because of, you know, I'm in my 50s now, and, you know, every birthday, some people get upset about their birthdays. I love birthdays because they remind me of how little time we have on Earth, how little time we have to do what we want. So I used this Joe's Pub show, and the fact that it sold out really fast. I said, well... I'm going to do what I want. I'm not going to ask people what they want me to play. I'm not. I'm going to do, if I want to do a reading from my play, I'll do it. If I want to do a reading from my journal, I'll do it. If I want to dance, this dance, who gives? I'm doing it. It's my birthday, and I don't have that many left. You know, none of us do. At a certain point, you go, well, you know, technology may be there that we could live way into our hundreds, but how healthy will we be? The thing is, like, we have all these healthy years that we don't know that that there's such a gift and then when you I'm very healthy I am I have more energy than I had literally when I was 20 I'm way more active and I have more on my plate and I deal with it really well but how long do I have to get to have this kind of energy and this kind of vibrance and excitement about life maybe only 20 years and then the rest might be I'm half you know could be cut in half well, you know, it's funny you say that because I, I looked, you know, as I said, I do, I do my research. I saw your birthday when it was, and I'm a year older than you. And you're right, as we get older, because like this year, I went through a health problem where I was in the hospital for eight days, which was awful. But then I got married, 
which was great. So it's weird. As we get older, we, we just keep developing a life. And you're right. I think of that sometimes. Like, how long do we have left to live in good shape and until we just, you know, are not as functioning as we are right now? Well, yeah, and the thing you said about married, too, because I've been single for a long time, and I haven't wanted to date because it looks like dating is all online, and I kept thinking, I'm just going to meet somebody through my work. I'm going to meet somebody at the right time, and that could be true, and it's not that I'm dying or desperate to meet somebody, but I was reading the places you will go, you know, Dr. Zeus, because I have a a very young child, I have a four-year-old, so I was reading her the places you will go, and, and there's this part in Dr. Zeus where it says there's a place where people wait, and they're waiting, and they're waiting, and then in the book he says, but that's not for you, you'll escape that horrible place, and I thought to myself, the only thing that I wait on, and have ever really waited on, is relationships, like I put them to the side, thinking that when I get my work to a certain point, I'll meet the right person, and then I thought to myself, but now wait a minute, Sophie. You're, you're having a birthday, you're 55, and you're so healthy and young inside, what are you waiting for, why, are, if, if dating is on the internet, then date, on the internet, who cares, start, so that's interesting, you said you're getting married, and suddenly all my friends in their 50s, are, they've met somebody new, they've had children, they've gotten divorced, or they're widowed, whatever, and they're meeting people, and I felt like, wow, why are you waiting so soon? Right. Well, you know, it's funny you say that because I said I, I, I got married six weeks ago and we were together for eight years. And during that time, I saw a lot of my friends who were my age getting divorced, but then starting to date again. And it's weird how it goes this full cycle. Like, you know, they get divorced and then they're loving it. And then they're like, wait a second, you're used to having someone in your life. It's very weird is when you get older, when you date, it's a different world. I think that it's in every generation. So for us now, like um, for my generation now, it's 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 not such a bad thing. Like to to do it the way everyone's doing it. And I know people who are meeting phenomenal people. And it's like I've just been sitting here waiting for it to go backwards. Like people won't be dating on the internet or won't be meeting. And I've seen it. It hasn't gone backwards. It's gotten stronger. And it could be actually really fun and. Uh, you can be honest about it. So, yeah. Uh, but the world has changed in the sense that you're right. People are getting divorced before their 50s or in their 50s, and they're getting, they're starting a whole new lives now, even with children. People are also having young children later. Like, I had children, you know, at, at 44, I had a child, and at 50, I had a child. And that's not uncommon anymore. I'm meeting women who are having children even older than 50. And,. They're also getting new relationships, and people are having children before they have a relationship now, because they're realizing that the reason to have a relationship isn't always to have children, that you have children because you're selfish and you want to have children, and that's not a bad thing, and then you have a relationship because that's a different thing. Now, you mentioned when we were talking about um, the play you wrote. Well, I know you, you've acted, you were a Janis Joplin in a play, but what's the play you write, and have you always been, a, have you always thought about writing a player, or is this something new? Well, I've always been, I've always written a lot. I have, like, you know, two novels that I've written that I know are not, uh, I wouldn't say good enough, but they're not uh, mature enough in the sense of structure. To, to release, but I've always had in my mind, when I get to a certain point, I will be able to figure out mentally what to do with this story. So I would keep writing the novel in, in kind of a beautiful way, like my paintings, not pressuring myself. Like, I love to paint, and I know that I don't have the, um, the whatever yet to be a, a painter, but I have these, and sometimes I hit goals with the painting. I hit, like, I, I do an amazing painting, and I do it just not even knowing, and then it turns out to be fa fabulous, and people love it, and whatever. But those come when they come. So, in a sense that, um, same, same way with, with writing. I had this sense that it's time to make a play out of this story, and then I started to do it, and I went to a playwriting class at um, in Manhattan, and I learned, you know, very little from it, actually, and learned much more from, from notes and feedback from real directors and whatever, learn much more from trying to get it up on its feet than I did in a class. That's what I would like to say. And um, and not to say that classes aren't good starting blocks, but what you hear in classes never leaves you, so beware. Because there's so many things that teachers say that are wrong. 
and they don't know that they're wrong because they're limited. We're all limited. And one of the things that I try never to tell my children is anything about art because it sticks with them. And it's wrong because nobody can say anything that can help somebody else, really, except just do it. Do it and get it out there because the best feedback is going to come by just watching people hear your songs or listen to your play or look at a painting. You'll know when you see them doing it, you know? Do you understand what I'm saying? Oh, yeah, I totally understand you. I mean, it's something that... Okay, so, you know, um, yeah. so, I've, so I've had these stories. I've written books about them. And, and then this, this idea for a play just crystallized. And it's changed so much. So there's a lot of scenes that I wrote from the very beginning. You know, it started a few years ago. A lot of scenes. I had a full play three years ago with a lot of characters and a lot of things going on. And now it's very few characters. And I'm trimming and trimming the story. And I think the whole thing about writing is the same thing about songs. You know, ultimately, to have a classic or long-lasting story, you've got to have such a phenomenal structure, and that's the hardest part to do, and it takes a long time, because you've got to have ideas that you can throw away, and you've got to see them through, and you just got to keep... So that's the process I'm at. I'm at the process of now I'm at another rewrite, and yes, it's about very intense things, but what's more important right now for me is to get the form right, because once the form is right, the content makes sense. Otherwise, it's just like, blah. Right, well, they say that, like, writing screenplays. You know, you you know the form, and then you sit there, and, and it's easier to write, because if you just are writing, 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 you don't really have the the beats and where to stop. And when you have a screenplay system where you can say interior and this and that, it makes it a lot easier. Well, yeah, but even beyond, you can have all that. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about, like, the real story structure, like something that, that separates from To Kill a Mockingbird from something that never gets to that point. That's, the, you know, I'm talking about writing a great story, and that takes what it takes. It takes years, that's what I think. Um, there's some, there is actually one great book about it, but I'm not going to say it on air because it's too complicated. But anyway, so, yeah, I'm at the point of trying to make something that I think is a really, really good story and I've gotten great feedback on it, a great story. I'm trying to go, that is a huge leap from good to great. Now, your musical career is, you've, you've been, you've lasted for a long time. When did you find out that you were interested in playing music? Were you a young child or how did you start this career? Well, yes, I, I was very young when I wanted to be, I just wanted to be music and it took me a long time to figure out how to start because, and I don't know whether this is a blessing or a curse, my parents didn't hear me say, I want to play drums, I want to be a drummer. And I tried for so many years to get to lessons, and it just never happened. And then uh, the one person who took me to a lesson was my grandmother. She took me to a piano lesson and when I was six years old, and that changed my life because I knew that I should be doing that but then my grandmother never came back and she never took me to another she never came back so for me my whole early childhood and I think childhood is the most frustrating most daunting time and I see it with my own children it's funny how we idealize childhood because it is such a difficult time but in my childhood I was always wanting to do music and never could because no one heard me that I wanted to do it. And I saw all these other kids getting lessons and being in the school play, and I was never in the school play, and I was never getting lessons. And I was so, so, felt so bad about it, because I thought it must be my fault. That's what children do. I must not deserve this. So when I became 14 years old, I found a drum teacher myself, and I stopped, and I, like a mother, I never let go. At that point, when I finally found a teacher myself, that was it. It was like, I was like a bad at hell for music. And that's how it happened for me. Now, what do you think made you gravitate towards the drums? Because I think it's the most poetic instrument. It's, that's the voice carrier. I mean, drums communicates across countries. It communicates across all barriers. And it's how we speak. I mean, the sun, the sun in the sky makes cosmic booms. We are rhythm. Everything, you know, it's like it's structure is rhythm too. Rhythm, Shakespeare is rhythm. You don't have the rhythm in Shakespeare. The words don't mean goddamn anything. So drums is it. And if people don't get that, they can't sing. You have to, you're like, so I went to the basic and I think that was really just a wise choice. 
And then I branched out. I branched out from drums to marimba and vibraphone and jazz to piano to cello. So I did the melodic instruments later, but I think that was for me. I just went to the core. Now, you went to the Manhattan School of Music as a percussionist, yes. and you were there for a, a year? Yes. I don't even know if I made it a year. I'd like to think that I made it a year and a half, and I might have. I don't remember how long I'd been there, but I remember the day I left. And again, that's a blessing and a curse, because if I didn't leave, I would have a degree. And But I did leave. And I went to... Cause I, I, what happened was I was in the dissertation room, and I put my hands on the piano, and a song started to come out. And I said, well, what, well, now if you're ready to write songs, and this goes back to, Steve, they're like stories. What, you can have something in your mind and in your heart, but you're not ready. I was suddenly ready to do the songs, and I knew it. So that's why I left the school, and I said, you have this moment now. I literally said to myself, you have this moment now to do what you really really want to do with your life do it or don't do it but don't stay here in manhattan school of music where everyone's going to be better than you at drumming and you don't want to be a drummer you want to be a songwriter you want to do this so don't don't wait that was the feeling i had don't wait do it so i left and i started from and though i was a drummer in people's bands i started to sing my songs from behind the drums i just decided don't wait do it now so how do you start branching out? I mean, how do you start making money as a musician when you leave? You know what you want. You're a newbie in the business. It's going to take time, which you know that. But where do you start from? What is your first pretty much paying, consistent gig? Well, I think that I think the mistake that people make is by thinking about the money. And I think that's where people ruin their careers. I think that you have to just do what you want. And if you need money, get a waitress job. If you need money, don't put this like, I need to be famous by such and such a time. More people have told me I became a publisher because if I didn't make it within five years, I knew I'd never make it. And then they get married to some rich guy and then they're, it's like they never did what they wanted to do. And that's always in them that they never did what they wanted to do because money or success was the issue. Money and success is not the issue at all in any part of life ever. And I keep trying to tell my kids this, but they will argue with me because for them, all they see are people talking about fame and money. It's not. Don't ever think about it. So what I did was I was waitressing. I was co-checking. I was doing anything that I didn't even care about, but yet I make, I met great people. And that's another thing I always tell people. If you just don't know when anything's going to happen. So I was a co-check. And I was writing songs and in bands, and I never thought about money. I never thought about success. I thought about writing great songs. It, that's it, writing great songs. And I knew that I would know when I got one. And I knew that I had them. So when I was co-checking and I had a demo of great songs, and it took years and years until somebody came up to me and said, you have a great speaking voice. And it was Mark Cohn who wrote Walking in Memphis. And he thought I was a, uh, he said, you're probably a really good singer. And I said, I'm a terrible singer, but I have great songs. So I handed him my demo tape, and he didn't even probably listen to it, or he might have listened to it, but he left it on his desk. He was a jingle singer. He wasn't even Mark Cohn, the famous songwriter. He hadn't written songs at that point. He left it at the jingle studio. And somebody who worked there, named Ralph Shuckett, grabbed the demo tape. He listened to it just by chance. He called me and said, these are great songs. You should be making records. I'm telling you, who could have ever imagined? That is the story. That's like a movie. Yeah, I mean, it's, it it's so funny you hear stories like that and you think they're in a movie. But so they found, to, now they find your 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 demo, and I say tape because it's probably a tape because, you know, we used to tape stuff. People don't even yes, understand. Tape. Yeah, people yes. don't even understand cassettes anymore. I'm like, yeah, you know, cassettes. You know, and they're like, uh, uh, now they're coming back. But so, so he finds your cassette and he says you should be writing songs and performing. So where do you go? What do you do at that point? Well, he said I should be making records, so of course I thought that he was like, you know, some kind of rapist or something, so, but I did decide to meet him, so I put a kitchen knife in my pocket, and I went to meet him in Brooklyn, and he was for real. He was a real guy married to a real nice lady named Ellen Shipley, who wrote lots of hits, and he thought that my songs were phenomenal, and we fought for many months over, like, taking out Dam or this or that or whatever, but... He, you know, he eventually gave way because I was really strong-minded about that. And he, at, at 
somewhere at the end of the night, seven record labels wanted to sign me. And so, so you could say that Mark Cohen was the channel through which Ralph Shuckett discovered me. But um, it was a long haul. I mean, I was playing shows. I would perform in front of publishers who didn't want to arrest me. I, I, I had written Damn I Wish I Was Your Lover way before anybody heard that song and thought it was good. A lot of my friends thought it was terrible. And I thought they were jerks. And that's why I'm trying to say you can't do things to make money because money is always something that's passed. Like, Damn I Wish I Was Your Lover made me millions of dollars many, many years, many years after it was written. So if I had been waiting to make money, I would have never, ever stuck by that song. Do you get me? Oh, I totally understand you, and it's true. It's it's it's, it's the artist's way. Now, your first album, how did you said people contacted you? What was it like for you going into the studio because you had all these songs and they were songs that you've had for a while. It's not like someone says you got a deal, write an album. For you, you oh, had a well, lot of I these songs. I had many albums with material. I had many albums with material, and going into the studio was a nightmare because even though I chose Sogi. And the head of the record company and all the people, like, I met Seymour Stein, I met Donnie Ido, I met Tommy Matova, I met everybody. I met Clive Davis, wanted to sign me. Everybody wanted to sign me. It was hell. It was hell because I was a, a very, I was a very, as I am now, like a pure person. And I was all about the work. And I saw, like, oh, my God, these people expect so much of me. This is going to be such an awful ride. You know, the promotion and the... The, everyone's needs and the demands and they really thought oh she's but I also really wanted it so much so I kind of was just um, going through the motions of meeting these people and enjoying talking to them and learning about them and then I would go home and I would just you know collapse because it was just such a weird world and it is a weird world so anyways um, I had signed, and then by the time I got to making the record, it was just one fight after another because, you know, first they want you, the songs they signed you on, they want you to start rewriting with different people who are losers, and then they want you to use this musician, and I was just one fight after another, but I stayed strong, and I didn't fight with people, I just did what I knew I should do, and that's kind of how I am, I just did what I knew I should do in the studio every day and I let all the fights pass and I stuck to my guns and I didn't let anybody rewrite anything and I didn't let the producer change anything and we used all the demos and thank God it was successful. But you know, if it wasn't successful, it would have been would have been horrible to have given up. Like, because, you know, you, if you give up and then you're not successful, then you've given everything up. You've given up your soul. Now, yeah, the album is successful. You get a Grammy nomination. Do you remember the first time you heard yourself on the radio? Yes, I do. I was on a promotional tour, and I was in Atlanta. And um, I thought it sounded terrible. I thought the song sounded terrible. I was really upset about the mix. I think that's how it is. There was no ever, there's never a moment, and I know when we're little and we dream of being recognized and all this, we think it's going to be so amazing to get that Grammy nomination, to hear yourself. When I got the Grammy nomination, I was full of fear. I didn't even go to the Grammys. When I heard myself on the radio, I was full of criticism. It's just that way. And then when you're older, at my age now, you think that would be so cool if I had loved it. But you don't when you're younger because you're just trying to get to the next place. Now, the album is a hit. Now you have to go and do the second album. Now, are you touring at this point? Or are you going out on the road? Or, or how's... Yes, you know, you're touring right off the bat because they need to prove that you can do it. I was on radio tours from 5 in the morning till 12 every single night. I was, It was very much harder work than it is now, I will tell you that much, because we had to actually go places. We didn't just get to sit and get followers. We actually had to get up at 4 in the morning, exercise in a, some hotel room, you know, some crappy, cheap hotel room, and there weren't even nice hotels then. Now there's all these chains that are, like, wonderful for people that are cheap. It was all bad. You had to get up, and it was cold, and you'd have to work out and get ready and get, you know, put your best face on and your best attitude on and show up at a radio station at 5 in the morning for the morning shows, and you had to perform, and then the next one and the next one and the next one until midnight. And you were having dinners with, at, at places that you would never go to with radio promoters, and it was just so difficult. But we did it. And that's how you got a hit. You got it by real people, real, real program directors, not like there is now where there are no real program directors. It was real people in real states, in real towns, sitting in real chairs, saying, I'm listening to real callers really call in 
and tell us they love your song. It wasn't about followers, and it wasn't about hype and fake and correcting. And I'm not, and I only sound intense because I have a cold right now. I think it's fine the way it is now. It doesn't really matter to me. A great song is a great song. But I'm saying we worked our asses off before the single even got to a number. So when, you know, by the second album, you've toured the world many times. Now, you know. now is is it? You go through all that. Your first album, you go through. As you said, yes. it's such a it's a laborious schedule it's just driving up the wall does that make you less excited for the second album because you know it's going to be the whole everything again yes and the problem with the second album is the record company then wanted to fire the producer Rick Chernoff and they did they fired the producer that you worked with on the first album and that you fought with and that you really became close to so what happens is that you know by the second album you know first of all by the first album during the time I was signed Columbia sold to Sony, so it became a Japanese company, stockholders, with the most important thing. That happened for the first album. By the second album, the business has changed completely. There's nobody looks the same, all different people, and everyone's losing their jobs. And I think by the second album, I'm not sure, no, I don't think Napster was around. That was the third album. By the second album, it's like, you know, now you really have to write with people. Now we really don't think you're ever going to make it because you didn't go multi-platinum. You only went gold. It's unfreaking believable By the second album, they're abusing you and they're saying you're shit and you didn't do that song well or you didn't do that show well and it's just nonstop. We're firing your people and go to Europe. Actually, Sony said move to Europe. America doesn't get you. And I was thinking to myself, America doesn't get me. I was on the road. They do get me. What are you talking about? But they just say things. They say things and then they get fired. That's what happens before the second album. Everyone who, who has everything to do with your career, they mess up your career and then they get fired. And you're like, what's going on here? So you're just holding holding, you know, everything you know to be true so close to you, but you become paranoid. It happens to every artist. Because there's good reason to be paranoid. Now, now the second album, though, you know, you had a, uh, a huge hit with. I mean, how did, doesn't the doesn't the record label change their tune when you do no. have a hit? I'm telling you, by the second, but do you know how, so the second album was made, and then four years later, As I Lay Me Down, is the number one, it's the longest running single in the history of music. Four years later, but four years of touring Europe, because America wouldn't look at me. And only because As I Lay Me Down was such a hit in Europe, such a huge hit, America had to take notice. And it wasn't America, American citizens, it was the American record company who didn't want anything to do with me after the first record. They were done. And then As I Lay Me Down became such a hit in Europe after four years of touring, they called me their lucky charm. And they deigned to put money into it in America. Then it became the longest running hit single. You can't even imagine what it was like. It was like, I, I can't even tell you. It was horrible. And then, then Sony America has this huge hit, I'm their lucky charm, but they don't really believe in you. They still think you might be a one-hit wonder. It's so crazy. Well, That's what they used to say to me when I'd walk into Sony in California. Well, we, we think that you may still be a one-hit wonder, but we're going to give Lose Your Way a try. By the third hour, it's just insane. Now, how do you... You know, you seem very, you know, stick to your guns and you seem like a very real person. How do you deal with that? You know, and it's it's not like, as you say, we're older now. You're 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 still new in the business somewhat. How do you how do you keep a level head and just not just get pissed off and freak out? I think for me, what keeps it, you know, like I said, I didn't have relationships with people like the one-on-one. I didn't have healthy relationships. So for me, it was all about writing songs every day and grounding myself in music and just knowing it's the same thing that when I was 14 and I said, I'm going to become a drummer, an African drummer. For me, that was what it was about. The grounding only came from the work. And that's why I was able to fight for the work. It wasn't, I wasn't just fighting for the work. I was fighting for my very soul. And I really saw the hypocrisy as it was happening. Oh, luckily I come from, you know, I came from a family where I was prepared to survive. I didn't come from all, you know, the supportive, that wasn't, I was ready. I was ready to fight. 
and they didn't and on the other hand too and this is really hard and sad about me i think i also really love people so i would always be very nice and kind but the inside of me was made of steel but the nice and kind was what made people also walk over me a lot well, they always say that if you know if you're if you're nice and kind, some people take that as a sign of weakness, which it isn't. But that, that's a thing that happens to a lot of people, and it's very sad that sometimes you 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 just want to be nice, and now you have to be skeptical. I know, and I I really try. I mean, I think there's a lot of things that are changing for the good in this world, and I think one of them is that people are taking. Um, psychology very seriously, and they're taking emotional growth very seriously, and I think that. Like, while the internet is destructive for kids in the sense of that the bullying and stuff, hopefully the, the awareness of children is growing too because they have to be more aware, psychologically aware, and uh, in order to survive this new climate of intense emotional bullying and the shootings and everything. So what could happen, and this was a thought that came to me recently, Steve, is that nice and kind may become actually not a sign of weakness. It may become a sign of strength. And that I grew up in an era where people were still the old world, like the mafia. Like all those record companies were mafia. And they and now the good thing is with all this terrible traumatic things that are happening to children, by children, against children, maybe humans will evolve to really realize that emotions are the most important thing. Like having the sense of connection with people is the most important thing. Do you understand where I'm going with this? Oh, I totally understand. And, and I agree with you. And I hope it does happen because, you know, as me, I'm someone who doesn't have kids, but, I, you know, I have friends who have kids. And also for me, I've always been a nice person. And you're right. People sometimes yeah. take advantage of you when you're a nice person. And then you get pissed off. But then you're thinking, you know what? Well, that person is just an asshole. So I'm not going to worry about it. Yes, I think so, and I but I do I do think that there there may be a new a new normal because I live in a couple of, I have a, some friends who are way older and they've made it you know by the the, the the cloak and dagger way you know business people and I see the way they treat children and I think it's actually good you don't have children because you could probably help people with children because sometimes people with children get just too crazy so well what I'm what I see is that the old world really doesn't understand how how these kids are now. And these kids are uh, potentially healers, and they'll potentially heal the world. That It's not that we've fucked it up. We've helped. We've paved the way for them. And sometimes when my son says, well, you, you know, because this party line is now, your generation messed it up for our generation. And I said, yeah, and the generation before that messed it up for us. And I said, but you know what my generation did? We gave you the road. Now you're walking on it. So we may have done not everything fast enough, but we sure did a lot. I don't take that from people anymore because we've really suffered a lot. So they now, their suffering is going to help the next generation. And hopefully, Steve, I guess the end of what I'm saying is all this about success and the cruelty and the pressure, hopefully it will give way to a new consciousness with humans. That's what I'm hoping. I hope too. Now, you know, as, as, as you talk, you know, you're very passionate, you're very headstrong. And I, and, and it was that, no, but that's great. But now, is that why you decided to break with the record company on your third album? Because you just, you felt yeah. like you had to be, it had to go in your direction because you knew what you wanted. Yeah. And you know, because, well, you know, I also, like, like you said, you're nice too, so you can relate to this. I also had tried. I had tried to work with them on everything. I had done everything they had asked. I had been, like I said, at all those radio stations. I had toured the world so many times. I had done everything they wanted. I had never said no, ever, to a promotional opportunity. So, And they had never put very much money into me. And everyone in the business knew that. I would walk onto a stage with people like Melissa Etheridge, and she would say, what's wrong with your record company? They don't do anything for you. Like, it was common knowledge how much they didn't put into me and how hard I worked. So then by the third record, I said, I've done enough. And I really, it's make or break time. It's kind of funny, Steve, because I've said this a lot in the interview, but it's like that moment where you go, I have to stop waiting. I have to stop waiting for Sony Music 
to believe in me and to really push me over the edge. They're not going to do it. I have to do it. And that's what happened on the third album that I just said, you know, you guys are trying to, now you're trying to take the banjo off. Why are you making this about a banjo? This is a great song. You know it's a great song. People love it. Let me play the banjo or else, uh, you know, and then it turned into a fight about the banjo, but it was a much deeper fight. And when I was talking with the record company and I met with them many, many times, I met with the, Tommy Matola and Donnie Einer, and I was said, look, guys, you know, this is, I'm, this is an artist career. This isn't a one hit wonder. This isn't pop single after pop single. You have to put the, 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 the belief in me or, you know, or, or I won't be successful. You can't just... Whatever, so it was. it's a longer fight to talk about with you, but it was months and months and months of going back and forth. And Sony didn't want me to go, I have to tell you. They didn't want me to go. And we ended up settling. I sued them, and they settled. And I sued them because I knew they weren't paying me. I knew they were taking advantage of me. I knew they would just pull me out of their pocket, whatever they felt like it, but that I was really struggling as an artist. And I needed to make a statement, so I sued them. And instead of them burying me, they settled. And the fact that I'm still here, Steve, is a freaking miracle because that music business is so mafia. And they really, really tried to bury me after that. And But luckily, the internet came and I was able to reach out to my fans. And probably my sense of the internet being an open door is what gave me the courage to want to do that. Because Ani DeFranco was sitting there selling you know, lots of records out of her van. And I said, well, if push comes to shove, I'll sell records out of my van. I'll buy one. Now, now you're, you know, the third album, you know, you, you, you were, did that on your, with your own production company, uh, your own labels, Trumpet Swan Productions. Yes. Now, and I, you know, you look at your bio and it says, then you just started touring, you know, in a station wagon and you were sitting there and you're taking the music to the people. How, was that more freeing than when you were, working with the studios and they're sending you everywhere because this were you were more in control was that was that a better time in your head well it was it was a mix it was the, the fun of it here i was this new yorker and i had never even had a sense of being really a pioneer person and now i was in california and i was literally like you just said driving around trying to build up my own company and but there was a bit of a mix because i was still it was an imprint on a label called Rico. Rico was about to go under but they weren't under yet so i had a bit bit of both worlds and it was really fun and also i was working my manager was super fun at that time you know it was a woman and it was a time of like selma and louise a little bit i felt like selma and louise and i i loved being in california i absolutely loved being in venice california so i was learning a lot i was you know buying a house and doing things that I, just as a little kid i never thought i'd be able to do and then but you know what it, it it wasn't that it wasn't it wasn't that fun but it was funner i would say now at that time too you know as you roll into your fourth album you know your sound is different are you are you really growing as a songwriter because now you have the freedom of not dealing with the bullshit from the uh from the record executives saying oh you can't have a banjo now you can do whatever you want is that did you really feel the freedom in your writing style no i don't think so i think that i always felt the freedom i think my um not i think i know that my judgment or, or my uh What's the word? What's the word? You know, you know when you write your best songs, and you know when you're writing mediocre songs, and it's really annoying. But you can't really always write great songs, and you try. I always had that inner voice, and it wasn't about the record company for me. They never defined me as an artist, so I didn't feel more free as an artist. And actually, I think I felt. I needed to grow more. I started taking piano lessons when I lived in California. I remember in, it was like the, the late 90s. I took cello lessons. I started singing lessons. I'd never try out. I'm in my 30s now. It's the third album. And I started to actually push myself to grow as a musician again with different instruments and to really, yeah, I think, I don't think I felt free. I think I felt like I need to, I need to, you know, I didn't, I, I don't know if I ever thought I don't know. I think I take it song by song, Steve. Like, even now, like, I, I just, uh, I never think that people get better in art. I think we just get different. I think our best 
stuff is usually when we're little because we're we don't know anything i don't think knowing things is good and that's why i started to take instruments because i wanted to be at the beginning again so let me answer your question really concisely and say no i didn't feel freer but i felt the need to go back to square one now you know you're taking all these lessons you said the cello the the keyboard all that and you're, you're a percussionist when you were younger does that when you start learning these different instruments and you take singing lessons and does that affect the way you write do you start sitting have a more broad broader mind now because you're like well i can write this part for me not for somebody else well i i mean i think that i was aware that my writing eventually would incorporate different things that I was able to do in the beginning. So that is true. I mean, then I was able to write a musical. I was able to write lots of harmonic things that I wouldn't have dared to do before in the first album. So yeah, it's changed. But I didn't, I just wanted to say, I don't think it's better. I just think it's different. And I think that um, better is not something that artists get. Like I said, like my son, in first grade, made paintings that I think he's never going to make better. They're just beyond brilliant. And I think that with a lot of kids, not every kid, but some kids have a knack. And if they become artists, they usually find out that their earlier work had something that sort of, it's untouchable. And I think that was some of the earlier songs. Now, you took a while off before releasing The Crossing. Was what? Why did you take that time off? Was it because you were just you were tired of the business, or you wanted to do other things, or you just wanted to get away with the business, or you just said, "I'm no, not in a well, rush." I wrote, I wrote a musical. I never, no, I never was tired of the business. I never. Well, I well, I I was tired of the business from the moment that I ever met a record company executive, but I wasn't um, ever disgruntled or dis disenchanted with my trajectory as an artist ever. No one has ever been able to make me feel bad about what I wanted to do. Because um, I, like I said from the very beginning of this interview, it's not about the business for me. The business is such a sideshow. I don't even care. But I, during, before the crossing, I wrote a musical, and it was really a great musical. And Kristen Chenoweth starred in the 29-hour reading. We had producers. It was phenomenal. And it never got there, like a lot of musicals don't, and it doesn't mean that it won't get there. But so I put a lot, I put years into that. It was tremendous work and fun. Actually, that was really fun. That was really fun. I discovered, and that's probably why, getting back to the beginning of the interview, I do love writing this play, which has songs in it, so it's kind of like a musical. I love writing, I love working with theater people so much because they're so smart. Like Christian Chenoweth is so smart. They're so smart about themselves. You know, actors really do have to do a lot of self-work, and it makes them really fun to be around, and it makes them, re and directors, they're just smart, because they understand emotions and where emotions can go and the consequences of actions. That's drama, and those kind of people are great for me to be around, because my whole life is about trying to capture drama in a song or in a story. Now, you you, you got followed, you have the love for the theater now, you love the acting folk. Uh, how did you end up getting a role as Janis Joplin? And was that something that you looked forward to? Because I'm sure it wasn't just singing, it was also acting. But you've been on stage yeah. a lot, so it, it's it's an easy... I always think, you know, if, if you go into something in the theater, it's an easier transition if someone has been on stage in front of a lot of people because they don't have right. that stage fright that so many people do get. Right. Well, that's interesting. I mean, Janis was actually written by my manager at the time. And she had seen some show in Vegas and she had this idea that she could write Janis Joplin for me and that I should play Janis Joplin and I said no way first of all the acting didn't scare me because I had acted in New York remember when I said I was a co-check yes. I was actually acting then and I loved acting I always loved acting getting back to I love people in theater I love people who want to know about emotions and what drives people I love playwright. I love Arthur Miller to death. So the acting wasn't scary, but the singing, I would said, no way am I singing Janis Joplin. I said, are you out of your mind? She's a coloratura soprano number one, Janis Joplin. And I had, you know, studied her as a drummer 
because I love the drummer at Big Brother, but to sing Janis Joplin was death-defying. So I said no for a long time. And then she convinced me because she wrote a really good story. The story was so good, I thought I can act the story and I'll figure out a way to do the songs. Luckily, I'm a really good musician, so I figured out a way to do the songs that nobody could tell that I wasn't Janice. And people thought I was Janice. And actually, her friends came to the show like her real friends, like her lovers, and said, you are her, and you're channeling her. And they gave me her jewelry, and they came back and back and back because they thought that I was really her. That's 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 like the, the, most, the utmost comp, uh, compliment. It was amazing, and I was so sad when the show ended. I remember driving home alone, and I was happy to drive home to my kid, but I was so sad because it was like a death. Like, I had gotten to know Janice. I had worked so hard to know her and to to portray her and to, to feel what she felt and to be honest about it and to bring it to the stage, like a new version of Janice. I was so sad when that was over because I felt like my friend Janice had to leave now. It was it was unbelievable, actually. Now, now, when did you leave L.A. and what brought you back to the East Coast? I left two years ago just because I was tired of L.A. and I think it was changing and it just didn't have the feel that it used to have. It wasn't, you know, it, it for me, it was just not, 10 years ago for me, it was great. It was just, it, it was made a change I made and I'm glad I made it. What made you leave L.A.? I mean, what was it a sudden decision, or was it something coming for a while? Or were you, like me, just tired of the damn city? Well, I had a child. And I always, always, every time I was in California, and I really love California so much, and I consider it a home. But every time, every day, I miss New York. Because it's hard to be from New York and to not have New York in your life. That's what I would say. It's really hard to be a true born and bred Manhattanite and to not have Central Park and the streets and all the the series of the seasons and everything that New York means to people. I grew up with that. It wasn't like I moved to New York. I was born in New York. So that was hard. I really miss New York. So when the opportunity came, when my manager and I split up the whole thing, and I had this child, and I also always thought, and I think my child would probably disagree, my son, but I thought, is California really a great place to raise my son? I didn't know, because I thought, it is if you're not in the performing arts, but if you're in the performing arts, there's so much BS. There's so much focus on the outer appearance of things. And so I thought it would be better to raise him on the East Coast, and then he can come back to the West Coast when he has a sense of who he is. That's what I really thought. So the opportunity came. Everything blew up in California. I, 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 like, I had to make a decision. Do I build my life back in California, or do I start again in New York? And it was obvious to me. Go to New York while you can. So how are you acclimating to the weather? Because it's funny. I've, I, do, I missed fall, and I dismiss spring. And winters, honestly, I've been lucky. We didn't have a bad winter. I live right outside of Philadelphia. We didn't have a bad winter. But it's just weird that, you know, when you are used to all those years when I was, just when, when winter was 60 degrees. You know, it's just weird. How are you acclimating to the weather? Well, by now I'm really used to it. But it, I moved back to New York in the coldest winter, I think, in 25 years. And it was freaking hell. And my son, I don't know how he endured it. He was only five. He turned five. We we were in the coldest winter in 25 years. And it was nothing but ice and sleet and horror. And it was like a six-month winter. And I don't know how we acclimated. I don't know how we stuck it out. But you know that's what you do when you're human. You just deal with things. And we did. And I don't know how he dealt with it. Because he was just a young person. And he missed the sun. And he kept saying, I look out the window and it's so gray. And there's so much darkness. And he, he just, I couldn't, I was like I was torturing him. And I was torturing him. I'll never get over it. I cried so much. Steve, it was the worst. But Nick, now I'm used to it. You're back now. And now, what are you working on right now besides your play? Well, I'm working on getting the music out. Because I have so many songs. And I have them recorded as an album. And then I have many songs that could be the next album and I'm working on how do I get these out and survive as an artist in this climate how do I tour and make money and support my kids but it's more like how do I build my audience back because it's so disparate and 
um, I don't have a record company, and every time I, I get close to having a record label, they fold, or the manager goes under, or whatever. So I'm basically um, reaching out to my fans and putting out, I'm going to put out a single really soon. Um, the single's ready to go, and my website has it primed and ready to go. And we'll see. I'll take it single by single, and then by the spring I'll have this either an EP or more. But I want to sort of space it out because this is such a learning curve with releasing now um, on the Internet. It keeps changing, and Spotify and all those things are really they're wonderful in some senses, but they're really hard for the songwriters to stay alive. So... I have to figure out how to to do it, and I'm figuring it out just by doing it because I've waited as people tell me to do it this way, do it that way, and then all those ways just, just, just uh, they close up because the business is changing so fast, and people really are struggling. It's, it's very difficult. So I'm just doing it, like I said, bit by bit, and I'm doing it with my fans. Now, now, as an artist, does it drive you up the wall a little bit that someone can do and make a YouTube video, get millions of hits, get thousands of followers, and they, a lot of times they put out a crap product. I mean, I've seen that in the comedy world. You know, people have YouTube followers, they get booked in a club, they go up and they do 10 minutes and they fall apart because they're not used to what it's like. As an artist who went through that early days of just the, the you know, as you said, 7 a.m. till midnight or 4 a.m., does that get you a little irritated at times that it's just so different now? Or are you glad you went through that because it made you a better person? Yeah, I, I think it, I'm really glad because like when I get up there at Joe's Pub, I actually know why people are there. And I feel really happy and confident. And I've worked for it. I've earned it. And I really have earned my space. And I think that that, you know, it doesn't bother me. I think the things that my son watches are funny. And I think he watches comedy on YouTube, and I think it's absolutely, there's so much funny stuff. But you're right, I never imagined any of those people going and having careers. I just think it's funny on YouTube. But, um, and my son is really funny also. And I always tell him, you know, don't, don't put your stuff, don't, don't do it now. You've really got to mature because it's like it never goes away. But anyways, um. No, nothing bothers me, Steve. Nothing bothers me anymore, but that's also, I've paid the price, and I've earned this kind of ability to be here. I have my, I've earned my place on the stage. I've earned my place in people's hearts, and it's really a great feeling. You know, I want to thank you for uh, talking to me today. Uh, it was great. I, I really love your view. You know, you're a... Uh... You're a true artist, and it comes across, and you're passionate, which a lot of times, you know, people lose that passion, but you've kept it. And so I want to thank you uh, for coming on, and I wanted to wish you a happy belated birthday because we're both Scorpios, so we're both, you know, we have to be passionate. Isn't it amazing? And my son's a Scorpio, too. But, you know, Steve, I want to thank you, too, because you allow people like me to get our point of view out there. Who would be listening to me right now? Certainly not my children. So thank you. Well, thank you. So people, go check out uh, Sophie's work. Go to her website, sophiebhawkins.com. Look at some of her art. It's a really cool website. And hopefully, I know she has some dates coming up on the uh, in San Diego and I believe uh, in San Juan Capistrano. I'm not sure. But they're in December, I believe. So go to her website, Sophie B. Yes. Hawkins. Now, do you, are, do you, are you... Actually, um, San Diego and uh, San Francisco, I think. Isn't it? Or Oakland. She, oh, she's in San Francisco on the 23rd and it's uh, Lestat in San Diego. Now, are you on Twitter? Yes, I am on Twitter. I'm on Instagram and Twitter, and I hope people follow me. And it's at Sophie B. Hawkins on both? Yes. At the, I think it's at the real Sophie B. Okay, so people follow her. Just Google Sophie P. Hawkins, Twitter or Instagram, and you'll find her. Follow me on Twitter. I'm at Cooper Talk. Go to my website, coopertalk.net. You can find over 750 episodes there. Email me, cooper at coopertalk.net. Tell me who you want to hear. So remember, I'm Steve Cooper. I'm only as hip as my guests. Don't forget, drink your water. Take your vegetables, eat your vitamins, and I'll talk to you next time. Thank you.